Welcome to Quick Clarity, the podcast where we talk about all things 3C. For those of you tuning in for the first time, 3C is the talentism model for understanding why confusion exists, how to turn that confusion into clarity and productivity, and what happens when we ignore confusion and let it harden into certainty. Each week, I talk to the founder of Talentism, Jeff Hunter, about the questions we see our clients dealing with and his latest thoughts on the state of humans, business, and the world. In today's episode of Quick Clarity, I talk to Talentism founder, Jeff Hunter, about return to office policy. Managers are having this confusion. They're having this confusion. The confusion makes sense. They had an experience during the pandemic. They were like in fight or flight. They had to go into remote. And so they just had to deal with that and figure it out. And and even though it was only a couple of years ago, we seem to have forgotten like how disruptive that was. But now that they have the opportunity to return to the old normal, they're using their power to demand that. I'd invite you to listen to this conversation if you find yourself in a discussion about return to office that feels fraught or contentious. We learn that often these conversations are about place and where employees should be working. When in reality, the issue that's more fruitful to discuss is productivity and shining a light and some awareness on when a leader's blind spots and fears have them trying to create a configuration that works for them and not necessarily for their people. Okay, Jeff, um, welcome to Quick Clarity. I'm glad we're having today's conversation. Um, I uh, This is actually one that is um, meaningful to me. It's the topic of returning to office, coming up with the right balance for your organization of remote and distributed work and in-person time and working at the office. And uh, I think as we've been hearing from our clients, we have um, many who following the disruptive period of the pandemic have put a model into place and are dealing with the implications of the choices they've made. And we have others that are still grappling with this topic and how it should evolve, how their policies should evolve at, at their workplaces. And so um, I'm glad I'm glad we're having this conversation. Uh, and in particular, I think I've heard you share a take that's, that's really interesting and worth exploring, um, which is that it's not actually about place, that the focus of the conversation needs to be on what creates productivity. Um, and recognizing how power plays into that. So let me, with that, turn it over to you and ask you to um, to sort of start with what you're hearing and, and what you're thinking as this uh, return to office and hybrid work model comes up in your conversations with clients. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Angie. And again, always a pleasure to be here. So I, I'll just start as I always try to do is with a self-reflection make sure I'm self-aware in the midst of this conversation. Just as context, um, I have either been founder or co-founder of multiple remote-first companies. And so I have a preference for that. And the listener should know I have a preference for remote-first. Some of those remote-first companies eventually evolved into um, 
a hybrid, what we would now call hybrid, although this was in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s, so we didn't have that kind of language back then. And some of them stayed, uh, some of them stayed, uh, you know, remote first. Um, for me as a founder, I was always trying to, because I understood I bore the burden of creating a great workplace that had to start with me. Uh, I was tried, I always tried to be clear on what I wanted and where I was and, uh, and then tried to be explicit about that with everyone. That's, that's how I've tried to run things. Talentism, of course, is a remote first company. It has been for, you know, a decade now. And, uh, and so it's been interesting to hear, uh, talk to my clients. And, and I was just at an offsite last week where RTO became a topic and a return to office became a topic and a very heated topic. It seems to be in the air right now, not just because some companies have, in fact, implemented their their process and and are imp- and uh, going down that path, but I think there are also a number of companies that are just trying to to deal with it uh, and think where to go next. For for talentism, it's always been uh, about a talent first sort of architecture for us, and so what that means is we need to be global and we need to be remote we wouldn't artificially constrain finding the greatest people for talentism by whether they could drive to a location consistently. We just wouldn't do that. We've built our entire strategy around that, et cetera. And so that's the background. Um, that's the background on this. But in my talks with my clients, um, it's been very interesting to me because I have this question I love to ask of them when they get into, uh, in a lot of my, the leaders, CEOs, founders I work with, that talentism works with, this can be a pretty uh, fraught topic for them. Sometimes they're heated, sometimes they're really doubtful, but it, it's, a, it's a topic that seems to have a lot of energy behind it. And the question I ask them, I say, just entertain me for a minute. If, if you had an incredible salesperson, just an amazing salesperson, would you fire them if they didn't f- fill out the CRM? And the answer is always the same. No, I wouldn't fire them if they didn't um, fill in the CRM. And then I'll say, well, is that because the CRM doesn't have any value? And they say, of course not. The CRM has tons of value. The CRM is where we get all our reports, et cetera, et cetera. And I say, okay, so help me understand. And the, and the response is always the same, which is, well, if a person is really incredible at sales or generating a lot of revenue for us, they sort of dictate the terms of how they're going to work in many ways. Like, of course, we have our boundaries. We have our bright red lines that you can't cross. But for the most part, we'll try to figure it out, even if you're not doing the things that we're requiring of everybody else. And I, that answer, um, you know, and of course, people are sharing that with me very honestly, but that answer makes sense to me and I think is really at the heart of what we're going to be talking about with RTO, which is um, RTO is going to be very difficult in concept to work through well because it's going to be implemented poorly and inconsistently. And, because, and that's going to happen for two reasons. One is because we're not going to be dealing with the core of what people are like, the confusion they have especially when they're in power. And two, we're going to be talking about the wrong thing. We're going to be talking about work and not productivity. And so that's really one that I, uh, where I wanted to start the conversation. Okay. I think, I think this is really useful because I think 
what I'm hearing you say is, you know, a lot of people thinking through what their return to office policy might be could look to leading practice or surveying their employees. And I think I'm hearing you say the discussion has to start with an understanding of the leader um, and, uh, and, and, and really about what any kind of policy is optimizing for um, because of what that leader is like, because of what the, the context of that company is. Um, am I hearing you right? Yeah, and and I think this will be a consistent theme in our conversations. Um, optimizing a policy gives a veneer of rationality to this argument that I don't think fundamentally exists. I do not believe um, in my many, many decades of doing work with managers and being a manager and everything, I, I believe that most of these decisions are actually made fundamentally from position of confusion, habit, or following the crowd. So one of the, like as an example, I think open office architecture, there's very little data to support that open office architecture increases productivity and yet everyone does it. And so I really don't buy into the argument that like people, managers all of a sudden are super concerned um, about, you know, uh, younger employees not getting mentored. I, I think managers were pretty bad at that. For the most part, I think that's what the data showed. Or about hey, making sure we get more work done. I think managers were pretty bad at that. I think managers, like there were people who were goofing off and people were like working really hard and managers did a poor job of managing that. I think what's happened is managers are having this confusion. This is what's really grounded in RIP. They're having this confusion. The confusion makes sense. They had an experience during the pandemic, they were like in fight or flight. They had to go into remote by fiat or by necessity or whatever. And then, um, and so they just had to deal with that and figure it out. And, and even though it was only a couple of years ago, we seem to have forgotten like how disruptive that was, how lonely people were, all those things. But now that they have the opportunity to return to the old normal, uh, which really was about the manager feeling comfortable because they had proximity, they're demanding, they're using their power to demand that. And really what I mean by power is they have the ability to hire, fire, promote, demote people. A manager, that's literally part of their job. And so... Uh, and so they're deploying that power in order to deal with their confusion. And, um, and they're con rather than bringing up their confusion, which again is grounded in the like, how do I manage if I don't have proximity? Because that's what I've been used to. Or in the like, what goal are we really trying to accomplish here? And it isn't just more work. Um, without that sort of orientation, the confusion really takes hold. So what I'm hearing in what you're saying is we had a way of working prior that for so many of us, um, we probably didn't give a second thought to, right? Sometimes we say a talentism, it's in the water, or, you know, we, we just sort of don't even notice we're swimming in it. And um, for many people in a management position, um, that created comforts and habits of how to do management. I can see my people. They're, you know, only a few feet away from me at their desk. Um, and, and I have a, a, a sense of, 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 you know, maybe being able to check up on them or know what they're up to or whatever it was. 
And um, for so many managers used to operating in a certain way um, with, with their teams and with their direct reports, that suddenly got upended in a way that was confusing and required very quick adaptation. Um, and now, as there's an opportunity to be more deliberate and intentional about what the model ought to be, um, the, uh, the, the challenge and the opportunity for managers is to do that with some real self-awareness without just reverting to the mean, but with some real self-awareness of why the old way, why the mean felt comfortable um, and, and, and what somebody in that seat um, might be prioritizing for implicitly, right? That ability to get the, the line of sight back or the, or the power back in the words that, that you're um, using. Am I, uh, is, am, am I hearing what you're saying is sort of the opportunity to, to take, to, to, as a manager, putting a policy into place to be more deliberate, but to first see oneself and one's needs in that um, policy shaping. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, so all we're doing is trying to uh, deploy our model here of you know three C, etc., into the current environment to the current question, which is um, RTO. That's the question we're exploring. Um, and so we're, we don't start with like, there's a lot of rational human beings walking around making rational decisions, given good exploration of data, et cetera. What we hold is that we're hairless apes and as hairless apes, we're going to default to models of habit and intuition and instinct and instincts, um, habits and intuitions are all built over prior experience. And most managers have prior experience of managing in close proximity to others. They show up at a regular time in the office. They, uh, you know, they walk around, they see people in the open model. Fundamentally, I think that's why the open model was created. So a manager didn't have to like travel office to office. They could just look out over the floor, see all the traders, see all the people. Uh, T-R-A-D-E-R-S, not T-R-A-I-O, uh, T-O-R-S. Um, and so, so there, that's what most of them are familiar about. And they're now saying, okay, like I need to return to that normalcy for me. Um, and then they're coming up post hoc rational they're coming up with post hoc rationalizations for that. Oh no, it's, it's because we care about the culture or we care about this in our model of thinking first you uh, belong, then you believe first you feel, then you think. And so. What is the feeling that a manager has underneath that? Um, now, to be clear, all of this happens in a hierarchy. And so it really starts with the CEO, the founder, the person at the top. What feelings do they have? And in my work with CEOs, there is a lot of nervousness about a lack of productivity, i.e. how much is actually being accomplished. And they're confusing that with work. They're saying not enough work is getting done. And that's a fundamental confusion. Work and productivity are not the same thing. Yeah. A farmer of 300 years ago worked harder in general than a farmer of today. Technology enables higher crop yields and less manual labor. It requires less work. We have higher productivity. So productivity is the issue. And you have to actually take a look at productivity different than work. 
when you fall into the work model of the like people are good because they produce a lot of work, then you fall into all sorts of blind spots and traps about human potential and how to run a great business. Now, I want to be clear, there are definitely goals and contacts that will require people to be together, right? Of course, of course, that's true. Uh, and I think people like Scott Galloway have made really good uh, arguments for the fact that humans are suffering because they don't have the social context of work. They're working remotely and they're lonely. I also think that's likely true. But what I'm talking about is where CEOs are saying that we have to get back together in order to be more successful as a business. One equals the other. And I don't think that's always true. And I think it would be better to start with the underlying psychological factors that are driving executive anxiety, driving founder and CEO anxiety, and then talk about the right goal, which is productivity and it's not work. So the, it, it's interesting because as you're speaking, I'm reflecting on the words I've heard come out of the mouths of executives that I've known, either because they're my clients or because I've worked with them. And um, it, it, I think what someone is feeling may motivate the rule that they try to make but then often isn't actually the justification for the rule that they give. And so, you know, some examples that are coming to mind for me is um, a, a client who I know because of what he shared about his past ex experiences feels, you know, he was really raised in the school of hard knocks. And so he is kind of disappointed at this soft generation that he's now managing that kind of shows up late and has all of these entitled habits and mentalities. And so, you know, part of how he... Uh, uh, part of how he sets expectations with his team at work is, look, the way that you get ahead is by coming in early and leaving after me because, you know, that's how I know you're hustling and you're really getting the work done. And so what is, what is explained or what comes out of his mouth to his team sounds more like if you are here for more hours, there is more opportunity for you to get work done, make an impact on this firm, demonstrate your commitment and, uh, you know, even get mentorship uh, from, from, from me and from the other leaders who are here. Um, and I think what he's really feeling in those instances is like, I had to do it. Why don't they? <laughs> and, and I reflect on, a, um, you know, an, another colleague of mine in the past who um, used to say, we were in a remote first environment, used to say, but I need people in the office for at least some period of time. And I think that her thought in that moment was, if I can't see them, how do I know they're committed? How do I know they're working? How do I know that they're not doing something else on their own time? Um, but the way that it would come out is, you know, we need uh, an environment where there's real community. Um, we need a, we need uh, people to sort of see each other and, and make friends at work because we know that that's a product, predictor of longevity um, with an organization. And so what you're describing, which is the difference between an honest grappling with, you know, personal motivations for why do I, why do I, I need it to work a certain way? Um, and the way that it can get justified and can, can come out, um, I think is, it's, um, it's really real. It rings true to my ear and, uh, it's a real opportunity for anyone who's in a position of architecting a return to office plan to, to do the talentism practice of start with me, what might actually be coming up for me um, when I think about what I need to be successful and what I'm worried about. 
Yeah, let's take that story you just reflected upon. I love that story. Um, so I think if you if you are the executive, whether this is right or wrong, I'm not judging it, you have the right to say this is how I measure good and bad. This is how I think about what is good and bad. And you have every right to say, being in the office is how I think is how, how I measure good. If you are in the office, then it is good. You have every right to say that. Now, if you say that, you are creating a fragile organization because there is really no correlation between presence and productivity. There's and I and I have a, a great story that I've told a number of times that illustrates this. I was at this really fast-moving startup, and there was this guy. I sat next to him in a cube, open office, et cetera. And so I'm sitting next, I'm sitting next to him. And from what I could see, this guy played solitaire all day long. It was uncanny how much solitaire this guy played. You know, he was playing that game Klondike. And he was brilliant, so he had created a script. And the script did two things. One is the script in his in the application he developed is every time the manager started coming around, he was watching him, and he put in the time, and then the, the uh, application spit out, here's when this person's likely to come by. And so then uh, the computer learned the, uh, the pattern of the manager walking around paying attention. The second thing is this guy had basically automated all his work away. So he was getting paid a really good salary to not work. The, what he was getting paid for was those two scripts. And the, what the application did is automatically moved his screen from Klondike to a, what looked like productive work, always around the time that the manager would be walking, even if the person was away from this, even if this guy was away from the desk. And that was, that was pretty early in my career, but it taught me a great lesson. Like, this guy got great reviews again and again and again. He was not productive. He wasn't. His job was basically not worth a lot, and he had figured out a way to do it without a lot of his attention. And I guess what he thought would unleash his potential or pass his time is playing Klondike. Managers are constantly being fooled. I have an endless stream of these stories of where human beings under bad management find out ways to trick managers. Of course they do. That would be the optimization of the situation that management has set up. Of course that's what human beings would do. And so if you are saying, hey, listen, what I need is you to be in the office. That's the only way I'm going to feel like you actually succeed. The people who show up early, the people who leave late, they're going to get the best reviews. They're going to get the promotions. They're going to get more pay. They're going to get more attention. They're going to get mentored more. None of which has anything to do with actually how productive that person is. And so what people will learn in that system is how do I invest the least amount of work to get to that point? right? How do I optimize the game to win with the least amount of risk and the least amount of work? That is what human minds are designed to do. And so people shouldn't be surprised. That's why I say you're going to build a more fragile company because you shouldn't be surprised that people are going to be really creative about things that actually diminishes the value of your company. And that's not because people are bad. It's because you as a leader lack the self-awareness to actually understand why you're doing what you're doing 
and lack the ability to set the goal right, communicate clearly, and get people invested and excited about unleashing their potential as opposed to figuring out how to win the game that feels rigged. So I think I think we're hitting on both an important point and potentially I'll, I'll ask you for some like some practical ways to deal with what you just said, which is um, if you as if you in your seat as a manager or a policy setter or a CEO of an organization uh, make it about return to office and people spending time in person, then people will give you that. And people will find ways to make you believe that they are giving you what you want, presence, attention, um, but you're tricking yourself if that's what you think you want, because what you really want in service of your business goals is productivity. You want people for their unit of attention and unit of resources to be getting you closer to your business goals. And you would set up a different system to enable and incentivize that. And you wouldn't be rewarding or measuring time in office. You would actually be rewarding or measuring the outcomes that you're trying to drive. And so it almost feels like a red herring to be having the conversation about return to office and how much time people spend in a specific place as opposed to having the conversation which starts, you know, starts with me and starts with the the leader in place about what environment and what system actually enables people to be productive. Yes, exactly. Think about the goal at the right level. Productivity is the goal. Work is not the goal. Presence is not the goal. None of that's the goal. And so first think about the goal at the right level. And the second is start with you. And as we get into practical tips, that's where I'll start. All acts of leadership are, uh, you have to demonstrate what good looks like. And what good looks like here is don't let your habits and your insecurities and your uh, intuitions create a rational uh, framework. It's, they aren't the same. You can you can say, this is my intuition and this is what I want to do as a result. And then you need to you know, bear the burden of that, bear the price of that. Or you can say, what is rational is to actually figure out on a case-by-case basis how managers can unleash productivity. Uh, and like, how do, I, how do I give my managers the tools to do that? But what's happening is mostly leaders being confused issuing edicts, post-hoc rationalizing those edicts when they're really just based on fears or intuitions or habits, and then claiming that anybody who doesn't follow them is bad, punishing them, and yet the people who are superstars who don't follow them will not get punished at all. And that's a recipe for more confusion and ultimately disaster. I think that that is a great transition into, okay, if I'm, if I'm sitting here and I'm realizing I'm a leader who's probably doing that, where do I go from there? (laughs) What do I do next? And I know that you have some practical tips um, that you want to share with us, Jeff. So I invite you to, to, to lead into those. Yeah. So the first thing is, you know, as we've talked about in prior podcasts, I believe the start with me concept is the most practical method of leadership I've seen. 
get books about leadership, you get courses about leadership, et cetera. But ultimately, all great leaders start with them because who they are, their confusion, their clarity, that guides the conversation, that sets the vision, that creates the meaning and trust. And so the first thing is work with a coach or a trusted partner to figure out what you're afraid of. Because trust me, that's what's driving this conversation, leader fear. There is some fear in there. Make pretend like it's rational to everyone else, but in a safe context, start talking about what's the underlying fear. Once you have clarity on that fear, share it in a way that's productive. Use the opportunity to share your confusion with their team, with your team, and then talk about what you're doing, willing to do in order to achieve the goal of productivity as opposed to presence. So that's number one. So number two is start the productivity conversation. Talk about where's, where can the best work be accomplished, not where more work can be accomplished. Lead the conversation about how people do their best work. So let's just start with the definition here. I, I claim that when I'm talking about best work, I'm talking about the work that delivers the most value for our customers and community. Because without the customers in the community, we wouldn't be here. And the community includes the people who come to work and all the various stakeholders enlisted in helping the company succeed. So we exist to serve our customers and we exist because of our community. And so best work is the work that I am ultimately capable of in order to deliver, uh, to deliver value for my customers and my community. And the question should be about where can I do the best work? Where can I be most productive? Number three is you got to start dealing with the leading indicators of confusion and clarity. So productivity is a function of psychology, not skill. This has been a huge change over the last, I think, 10 years, maybe 20 years in the nature of work. It's a change that it's a, a change that hasn't been discussed enough. And we're going to be continuing to bang this drum. Most productivity issues are now psychological. They aren't educational. They aren't skill-based. Productivity is being hampered because people are confused. And in that confusion, they are starting to revert to the mean or to the group, or they're starting to do things that are fundamentally unproductive, especially as technology can take on more and more of the rules-based work. And so when you're taking a look at your financial indicators at the end of the month, you're taking a look at EBITDA and you're looking at growth and you're looking at all those indicators, you understand all of those are lagging indicators to a bunch of operational outcomes that led to those results. But those operational outcomes were a result of behaviors and the behaviors were a result of psychology. And so you need, to, if you can capture the psychological states of people in key business criteria like goals, like measures, responsibilities, uh, culture, then you actually get the early warning sign on when people are going to start to be unproductive. And you can have the conversation at that level, not the conversation of just work harder. And then the final is that executives have to be committed to getting managers the tools they need. 
Leaders lead, and that's really important. They lead with their language, they lead with their behaviors, but productivity is about how efficiently, effectively, and predictably you can achieve goals through the work of others. It's productivity is a manager's game. It's a manager's opportunity and a manager's problem. And right now, executives are underutilizing and underinvesting in managers to help them be better at productivity. Instead, they're issuing edicts from on high about policy and then really failing to understand that managers are people too. And they're caught betwixt and between the people who are going to be affected by these changes in return to office, the upheavals to their lives, and the executives who are broadly shielded from those things. And so managers are caught in the middle, and yet managers are really the people you're depending on to improve productivity. So you have to invest in them, and you have to get managers the tool they need. So number one, start with me. Get that productivity conversation started. Get the goal to the right level. Look for the leading indicators of confusion and clarity before it bites you in the ass, and you end up with a bad month, bad quarter, bad year. And then make sure you're focused on managers and getting them the tools they need. Don't just make it about a policy. Jeff, I found that so helpful. And I think the way it all ladders up for me is if you find yourself as the leader of an organization, um, perhaps as the sort of people, talent, HR leader of an organization in the middle of a return to office conversation, and I think I'm hearing from you, Jeff, that um, many of your clients are in the middle of contentious and fraught return to office conversations, that uh, recognizing that return to office uh, might actually be a red herring in the discussion, which is actually about productivity and enabling that and enabling that with an understanding of a leader's implicit needs and beliefs and enabling that with an understanding of the role of managers um, is is a way of reorienting the discussion so that it's, it's more productive um, and really impactful to the business's goals. Yeah. Angie, you always say it so much better than I do. <laughs> Lol. <laughs> <laughs> For all the kids out there, that was LOL, I believe. <laughs> I, think, I don't think we can say lol anymore. I think they say I'm dead. I'm dead. Yeah. Woo, kids these days. <laughs> I'm glad I'm getting old. If you're a kid and you're listening, please write in and tell us what Exactly. <laughs> Our core audience. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I think that's all we got for today, unless there's anything else you want to add, Jeff. Nope. That's it. Okay. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks.